hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, the shit no one tells you about writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. We'll be starting today's episode with our new segment, Books with Hooks. In it, super agents Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira from PS Literary Agency will be reading the query letters and opening pages you submit for their feedback. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to test run your submissions so that when you get them in front of your dream agents, you'll make the best possible first impression. If you'd like to participate Email your query letter and the first five pages of your novel in one document to theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com. Please redact any information you don't want us to share on the podcast, like your name or the title of your work. So let's start with Writer X, who submitted a book called Title X, A Psychological Murder Mystery. Dear Carly and Cecilia, I'm looking for representation for my first novel, Title X, a psychological murder mystery of about 85,000 words. The book starts with distraught dinner party guests huddled around a corpse. The setting is Rupert and Giselle Parr's lavish dinner party, and the victim has been brutally murdered. Detective Dixon arrives on the scene and sets about interviewing the remaining guests to determine which of them is guilty. Starting back at the beginning of the evening, 
happening, the reader is soon privy to the fact that all six of the people present at the dinner party have secrets, some of them quite deadly. Cecilia, I think this one's for you because it has more than one conniving female, escalating tension, twists and turns, and a surprisingly satisfying end. You asked and I delivered. Carly, I hope you'll like it because it has good pacing and I can see book clubs enjoying it. I am a digital copywriter by profession and a mother of three, so I guard my writing time in the early hours of the morning fiercely. I have a degree in film from the University of Cape Town, and I've been relentlessly working on a novel since I was a student. Almost 20 years of writing has taught me how difficult the novel writing process is and has made me determined, resilient, and hardworking. Please find the first chapter attached. Kind regards, Writer X. I really enjoyed the query letter. I would have liked to see comps. So I guess that's that's a note I have for, for the writer. But I love the premise of this novel. It's it's right up my alley. I do think that, you know, the second paragraph, there's a bit more detail than we would need. You don't have to say that the detective arrives on the scene and sets about interviewing everyone, right? Like we don't need a play-by-play of of what happens. We just really need to understand what the inciting incident is, which we do. Um, it's a dinner party guests huddle around a corpse. And, and then, you know, there's, there's like a murder mystery angle to this, like people are keeping secrets that this is all great. It's all stuff that I love. So yeah, I like that she personalized the query letter. I, I like that the writing credentials that she talked about, that would be my only note to like shorten it. And also, you know, comps, comps always help. Perhaps knives out as a comp. I mean, you can comp, you can use movies, right? Absolutely. I actually love movies as a comp. I do think that having one book is always great. But you know what? I heard that My Lovely Wife was pitched as Dexter meets Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So a colleague of mine had had lunch with the editor and that's what she told her. So I feel like it makes sense sometimes to use two movies. So it's okay. Or a TV show or whatever. So whatever works, as long as it's true to your story. Yeah, I I actually really like movies or podcasts or TV shows as comps. When I'm going to pitch the book, I'm going like to an editor, I'm going to include book comps, but I don't I don't mind alternative just media comps in general for a query letter. That's fine for me. But one thing just to remember is that when editors need to go to buy the book and they put in their PL and, and they're deciding how much they're able to offer on a book, they need book comps because they need to be able to comp it to things in the market. So eventually we're going to need a book comp. But yeah, and I would totally use knives. I wrote knives out all over this one because it had very very, uh, very strong knives out vibes for me. So I, I, I thought also thought the query letter was really good. I liked that paragraph that was very kind of cinematic and setting the scene. Again, you know, obviously everything could always be a little bit tighter, um, but but I didn't mind that dinner party guest huddled around the corpse paragraph. I think the little personalization in the middle with with Cece and myself um, is obviously very nice for this purpose. But for a traditional query letter, I think you just kind of move that to the top and make it a little bit more formal for for that thing. And then the last paragraph was the bio paragraph. To me, I would definitely trim this one down. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's just a couple of things. It's like, this is what everybody says. Like a lot of people say, you know, I've been working on this novel for 20 years and et cetera, et cetera. So again, just doesn't do anything for me. I would just probably trim all that stuff out and obviously keep the degree. And does it make a difference to you? And this is a general question for all listeners, you know, not just for writer X. 
you know, she says that she got her degree from Cape Town. And so one assumes that that is where she is based. Does that stand in the way ever of you offering representation to people who live far away, who don't live in your country or not at all? I would say it doesn't matter to me. What I always say is that you should search for an agent who has a track record of selling books in the territory that you want to be published. So if we feel like the biggest audience for this is a North American audience or American audience, you just want to find an agent that sells the most amount of books to that market. So yeah, so it doesn't really matter to me where somebody is based other than, you know, we're just going to be Skyping and, and Zooming instead of uh, on the phone or anything like that. But, but yeah, to me, it doesn't matter. Cece, do you have any opinions? I agree. I definitely think that it's important for us to know where you are, but I really don't mind if an author is is local or not. I have such close relationship with clients of mine that I've never met. So it's it's not an impediment at all. And really, I mean, Carly really hit the nail on the head. It's about finding an agent who is actively selling in the territory that you want to be published in. And of course, everyone wants to be published everywhere. But like the lead deal, right? Like what's what's your lead deal ambition? Cece, would you like to begin on the opening pages? Yes. So really, really enjoy these pages. It does start with a prologue. And I'll just start off by saying that I know a lot of writers think that agents hate prologues. I've heard this so many times. It's true that prologues do um, incite strong feelings in a lot of people, including agents. In this case, I think the prologue works really well. Because of the setup, you, you want to show people around a body because that's the inciting incident. And you want to make sure that we don't know who's talking because we don't know who died, right? That's a huge part of the story. So I do think the prologue is the right way to go here. My note about the prologue is that I would want it to be a bit voicier. I'm wondering if perhaps we couldn't lean into the whole setting as character element and have almost like the prologue be told from the point of view of the house, since it's such an opulent house. I don't know. That's just a thought, but I do want it to be voicier. It's not as voicey as I would like. And I know that note is so vague because voice, it's one of those things. It's like freedom, right? Like you understand it as a concept, but explaining it is so hard. So in terms of chapter one, we're in Tristan's point of view. I really enjoyed being inside his head, but I want more. When he's talking to his wife, we get dialogue. And we get quite a bit of dialogue right off the bat, but I want to know what's underneath his words. And because we're inside his head, we have access to that. Remember that this is a psychological murder mystery novel. So the psychological element, the state of mind of the characters is so important to the story. So I want to know when he tells his wife, right or left, which one he's hoping for. I want to know, you know, when she gives his answer, because he's obviously somebody who clearly loves his wife. Is he happy at the end of the day to please her or is he resentful? Like, I want to know what emotion is under the emotion that he's showing. I think that those layers are really important. And it's a huge reason why we connect with characters. So this is plot driven, but I would still lean into character development right off the bat from chapter one, because it's all about character and then story. Loved the little comment about the dark blue strip of the Monopoly board. I thought that was funny. But yeah, I found myself asking what he was really feeling. So when he says it doesn't feel right to throw a party so soon after losing a parent, is that envy disguised as judgment or is it genuine bafflement? Like, I don't know. I want to be inside his head more. I guess that's that's what I'm saying. I also think that if Giselle is his wife's best friend, that should be mentioned right on the beginning. It's not 
more towards the end of the pages, but also really not a big deal. I thought it was very well written and I really enjoyed it. And I actually want to know who died. So it's a great sign that I want to know what happened. And in terms of that inner monologue and getting to know the character right off the bat, it helps, especially in a genre like this, where readers are already looking for red herrings. They know there's been a murder and they're like already trying to be, okay, so was it this guy? What's going on in his head, etc. So if you can drop some dodgy tidbits about each character, give some kind of uh, nefarious insight into their into the way their minds work, that keeps the reader engaged very much as well in this kind of genre. Carly, what was your take? Yeah, I agree with uh, with everything that Cece has said. So first of all, love the prologue. I do. Th- I thought it was very cinematic. I wrote, yeah, as I said, knives out over everything um, because I really felt like it gave us that vibe. The only thing that's confusing when we, when we don't have those kind of voice tags is there's a lot of like he and she and her and things like that. So I would just do like another comb through to just make it really clear that the he that's on the ground is not the he that's, you know, checking for the pulse and just double checking that all of those kind of tags make a lot of sense. I love the little kind of, I don't know if they're exactly red herrings, but a couple of the lines like cross my heart and hope to die, jail, like there's these little like, you know, we know something's coming and it's kind of like a wink to the reader. So I love little winks to the reader in this type of genre. But overall, yes, I thought it was very well done. Very interesting. Definitely want to keep going to find out what happened. My only note is, um, you know, because we're playing around with this kind of classic murder mystery, like, do we get a clue vibe? Do we get a knives out vibe? Like how modern is it? we're talking about architectural digest and this big modern house and so i don't know if we need like a year stamp or something like that maybe not necessarily but even if like they're talking they talk about cell phones or something modern just to kind of bring us into the present just to remind us where we are as like a juxtaposition against the old house and this kind of classic clue knives out kind of thing so that would be my only take is just figuring out that balance between the nod to the historical and grounding us in the present um, as a nice juxtaposition but other than that um it was really interesting okay let's move on to our second query dear the shit no one tells you about writing As a long-time listener to your podcast, I've learned about the series where Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira will be discussing query letters and first pages. I'm excited to share Always Been a Storm with you. 16-year-old Jane Anderson doesn't know much about herself, but one thing she knows for sure is that she can't leave Portland. To protect herself after an assault at her first ever party, Jane created The Zone a secret system of places she can go and people she can trust. It's worked well for her these last three years. Sure, she pretty much only has her best friend Adam and an intimate knowledge of each inch of her apartment, but she's safe now and wants to keep it that way. The zone is put in jeopardy when Jane's dad leaves for a work trip and sends her to stay with her aunt Sarah 3,000 miles away for the whole summer. At first, she immediately rebuilds the zone inside the confines of Sarah's house. She intends to stay there until she's shipped back home. But with prodding from Sarah and encouragement from Adam, Jane attempts to expand the zone inch by inch. As days pass, Jane discovers that she might just want a wider future than she ever imagined, but she's unsure she'll ever get there. When she literally falls at Delhi Cashier Cooper's feet, something brand new occurs to her. Not only does she have to figure out how to reach that future, but also what the feelings growing inside of her mean every time she looks at Cooper. Jane's ready to leave the zone behind for good to get what she wants. She thinks she is, at least, as long as the girl with the dimple is by her side. 
That is, providing that a reminder from the past doesn't destroy everything she's trying to build, trapping her back inside her own protective cage forever. Complete at 79,000 words, Always Been a Storm is an own voices contemporary young adult story that will appeal to fans of Nina LeCure and J. Robin Brown. I was born in southern Connecticut and lived in Boston before carrying my cat onto a plane to find my great unknown in Oregon. The story is personal to me as an anxious queer adult who was once an anxious queer teenager, looking for media that showed me a joyous future was waiting for me. I appreciate your time in considering its possibilities. Sincerely, Manda. I just want to say that I love the themes in this. Anxiety, I get that. I totally understand. I don't know Jane Anderson. That's our protagonist, but I feel for her already. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I do think it could be trimmed down a little bit. I know that I feel like, I feel like I say this about every query letter, but it's true. Lean into your powers of brevity. There's a bit too much detail, so we don't need all the detail. First paragraph is working really well. I would have liked to see the word count and the comps right off the bat, but that's okay to keep it towards the end. It's not a big deal. But I do think that the second, third, and fourth paragraphs could be two paragraphs. You could trim that down quite a bit. But yeah, I, I enjoyed the query letter. I like knowing that she took her cats on on a plane because I did that with my dog. So it's just it's just one of those small little tidbits that show your personality. I always appreciate it. I do think query letters should be professional and this is professional, but it's always nice to also see a little bit of personality here and there. So I appreciated that. Kali? I believe that I had the same kind of overall feelings in terms of what to condense. I thought that the the paragraphs that started the 16-year-old Jane and the zone, the, the kind of the two... Uh, the beginning of the two middle paragraphs, those could have been one paragraph or even two lines, like talking about the whole concept of the zone and, and her background, that could have been two lines only. I liked the the third bulk paragraph, which is the as days pass, Jane discovers she might want a wider future. It's like to me, that's a bit more of like what the book is about as opposed to the setup and the premise. And then lastly, I did really like the, the way that the um, bio paragraph was written. But I think I've said this on a previous podcast is that I also like when the word count and the title and the, the comp are at the top just as a, as a way to kind of set the tone. But I think it kind of worked in this case because the beginning of the of the book, the middle paragraph says 16-year-old Jane Anderson. So like I kind of knew it was YA. Right. Cece, would you like to start discussing the opening pages? Again, love the concept. Love Jane already. I think, again, this is totally subjective. It's just one agent's taken. I've only read five pages, but I'm pretty convinced this should be first person. See, we're inside a character's head in more ways than one. When you're dealing with POV, then you're dealing with whose point of view you're you're hearing from. So whose head you're inside. But when you're dealing with anxiety, the character feels like she's trapped inside her own head too. So it's two layers of being inside someone's head. So first person, I think, would work so well for this. It's just quirkier. It would match with the anxious vibes that I'm getting from this. So that's my note. There's a part towards the end of the pages that we get her thoughts and that's in first person. And that to me just solidified the note that I had right off the bat about this being better for first person. So that's my POV note. I also think that maybe we should start this in a different place because she's she's boarding a plane, right? And then we go to yesterday. Like in the very first page, there's already like a flashback. And we I know we've said this before on the podcast, I would avoid flashbacks in your first pages, even in your first chapter. If yesterday is essential, start with yesterday, right? Yesterday should be the beginning of your story. Although I am not entirely 
entirely convinced that it should be. Because of the query letter, I know that Jane's dad leaves for a work trip and sends her to stay with her aunt, Sarah, 3,000 miles away. So why don't we start with her arriving at her aunt's house? I always think that like arriving in a new place is a great place to start because we feel like we're in that journey with the character. But you know, regardless of where, where she wants to start, I don't think she should dive into a flashback right away. I enjoyed seeing her friendship with Adam. I, again, love, love, love how she's exploring anxiety and how she has created the zone. Anxiety is something that so many people can relate to and constructing boundaries and zones to cope with it is is great. So I felt like the entry into the airport almost felt like a prologue because we spend such a little amount of time there kind of setting up, you know, what happens in an airport. I'm not sure if the attempt was to be cinematic to kind of like place us in the airport, smell the airport, see the airport. Like there's a lot of those sensory kind of things that happen in the airport, but then we spend less than one page at the airport and then we're kind of back to the past. So I agree. This does not start at the right place. I can't quite figure out what the right place is because I really liked the yesterday stuff because we also find out that her dad is leaving on a trip and it sounds like her dad's leaving that day and then she's leaving the next day so I had questions about like what is she doing that night if like her dad anyway maybe I misread it but it seemed to me like the dad was leaving that day and then she was leaving the next day so I just had a lot of questions about that but I thought the friendship with Adam was adorable when he had the the two helmets when he was like giving her a hard time about joining him on his bicycle and then he's like then we look over the corner or around the tree and he has two helmets it's like that's so cute so I thought it was really adorable but yeah I agree like if we're if we're talking about YA we're talking about a very emotionally tense time in somebody's life Uh, the people reading this generally most of the YA audience is YA Obviously, there's other people that read YA as well. So the, like how intense this is. I'm wondering if they did it in third person because it was like so intense that we had to be like one step, step back from the intensity. But I do feel like for YA, uh, first person is a huge benefit to kind of really feel all of those feelings. I think that even just starting on the yesterday is better than starting where we're starting. Overall, again, I thought it was really cute. You know, it's a very interesting little setup. I love the zone as like a little hook. So this kind of checked all the boxes for me. I think it's just figuring out where it begins, which is a lot of people um, common issue on this podcast, as you can tell. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm thinking like the inciting incident, because if you think about the structure of a novel, you have your inciting incident and then which is sets the dominoes in motion. Everything happens as a result of that one thing happening. And then later at the end of the first act, you have your key event, which is like this point of no return that the character has to be thrust into the the second act. And I feel like what starts everything here is the dad telling her he has to go. So I, I don't know if maybe dramatizing that more so that her anxiety immediately rushes to the fore and that maybe he's quite nervous to tell her that he's going because he knows how badly she's going to react to it, that it's kind of like a sit down, I have something I need to tell you kind of vibe. I don't know. That's what I was perhaps thinking as the the beginning of the novel. And then, of course, we'll get her response to it, which will then immediately start to understand all of her anxiety and all of those issues. So we'll get an outside tension in terms of him telling her and we'll get the inside tension of her response to it because most teenagers would be like oh cool I'm going away for the summer but when we see her anxious response to it we get okay this is not a normal kind of response to it what are you thinking Cece? I agree I like that I like the idea of starting with her dad telling her about his trip and then having 
her reaction not be what we expected? Because I'm totally with you. Like, I think that most teenagers would be like, exciting. Where do I get to go to? Or if they did have a problem leaving, it would be because all my friends are here and like, I want to hang out with my best friends or whatever. So, so yeah, it shows that she's deviating from the norm, which is a good thing that makes her interesting and it makes us connect with her. I know one of the best ways to make anyone connect with a character is to have them be different or an outsider because we, you know, as, as humans, we tend to feel more empathy if you're not if you don't have all your stuff together is what I'm saying okay so let's move on to our third submission dear Mrs. Waters I've noticed on manuscript wishlist that you're looking for women's fiction and coming of age stories for an adult audience so I'm submitting spring again a 70,000 word work of fiction about the intersecting stories of two women 115 and 131. Spring again alternates between the two women's voices, exploring themes of love, loss and friendship. This novel is a heart in a body in the world meets lovers and writers. Spring Again is about Hayden, a ninth grader who is two months post her older brother's sudden death, juggling the demands of high school, a grieving family and first love. Spring Again is also about Stella, a woman who is attempting to find herself amid a devastating separation from her husband and the declining health of her mother. Their friendship begins suddenly one afternoon, a fateful encounter that may be exactly what they each need. The intersecting female perspectives explore the saving nature of friendship in a time of heartbreak and grief. It also looks at the different layers and versions of love, from romantic to familial, asking the question, is love worth all the pain? I'm a graduate of Clemson University with a BFA in sculpture. I'm currently a part-time acrylic painter, part-time flower farmer. This is my debut novel. I live in Greenville, South Carolina with my husband and our 70-pound rescue hound. This novel is in part inspired by my own family tragedy and the ripples that still linger. I'm a lover of pop culture and consider Booksmart to be the best movie of the past five years. On any given evening, you will find me with a plate of chocolate chip cookies and a glass of wine. Thank you for taking the time to read this query. Sincerely, Rebecca. Cece? I love stories that alternate between, you know, two female voices. Love that. That's, you know, she's exploring themes of love, loss, and friendship. I love all that. Again, a small note, but I think that when she mentions the comps, she mentions a book called Lovers and Writers. I'm pretty sure she means writers and lovers. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, um, but it's one of my favorite novels. I love it so much. So, you know, just something to, to check. She mentioned that she's a lover of pop culture and she considers Booksmart to be the best movie of the past five years. I agree. Booksmart is wonderful. Promising Young Woman has now taken the title for me, but it's like a close second Booksmart now. I would say that I, I love what her book is about. Um, she's, she, she's writing a very strong query letter. But towards the end, she mentions that she would love to send us the manuscript, but she's in her second round of edits, but she plans to be finished soon. And I cannot underscore this enough. Do not query an agent unless your work is ready to be sent out. Like if the agent asks for a partial or a full or whatever, it needs to be ready to be sent out immediately, immediately. So because it's it's just so important, right? Like you, you're there's no rush. If you're if it's not ready yet, that's okay. I actually really appreciate that you understand that it takes multiple revisions before something's ready for an agent's eyes. But but don't send it out yet. That's that's my big note for for her. I I made that uh, mistake about 15 years ago in my in my career. 
And I still believe that that premise of that book was stolen for the good place, but I will bitch about that another time. Carly, would you like to go? Yes, I would. But I also want to hear that story of yours for, for another time. I, I have a lot of feelings about this query. And so overall, as a concept, enjoy it. But then in a very like, let's break it down about how this works in a publishing world kind of thing. We start to get complicated because of the 15 year old and 31 year old protagonist. So we say it's women's fiction and coming of age. But then we start with the ninth grader. And we, I think we need to start with the adult character. Like because it's an adult audience, we kind of need an adult entry point, I believe, into this because I have come up against this before. And because I, I love, again, I've talked to this before in the podcast, but I love multi-POV, love coming of age, love women's stories, you know, all, all of the things this covers. And so I've, I've, ha- I've gone out on submission with a project before where it was exactly this. It was a mother-daughter situation where it was like a coming of age for the daughter. The mother, you know, had her daughter young. So it was like a lot of similarities and mirroring between the two experiences, um, which was beautiful. But we started with the daughter's point of view. And when I started pitching it to editors, a couple of them would kind of look at it um, and say like, oh, like I wasn't sure if this is YA or not, because you're, when you start with a younger character, um, it just causes a little bit of confusion. So that's just a, an experience thing. Um, but the book went on to sell and it's a wonderful book. It's called The Secrets of Lake Road by Karen Catcher. Um, but the reason we started it with the with the child's point of view is that the inciting incident happens through the POV of the child. So there is always a reason for things, but I just want to let this, um, this writer know that it is very kind of, you're treading on very than ice here in terms of what works and what doesn't. So if it was me, I would say start with the adult character. And then the next thing of, of my notes was, it says, their friendship begins suddenly one afternoon, a fateful encounter that may be exactly what they each need. I would like to know what the fateful encounter is because we're talking a lot about feelings and I care a lot about plot. So you've kind of built up this wonderful little setup between these two um, you know, mirroring characters. But again, I, yeah, I care a lot about plot because I need to sell a book on plot. I can't sell a book on feelings. My only other thing was that I do feel like it's on the shorter side, 70,000 words, not a problem, but like that's definitely on the lowest side of, of fiction that I would ever consider representing, especially for a dual POV, because think about how little we spend in each character's point of view. It's, Essentially, if this is half and half, it's like 35,000 words, right? That's not a lot of words to kind of get to know somebody and get in their head. So, Cece? So we're following Hayden, who's just walking around. And in the second paragraph, we have a line that says, she kept an eye out for the familiar woman with her bright leggings and baggy band t-shirts. They always shared a wave despite not knowing each other's names. Their commonality lay in their shared neighborhood, Rose Hill. Here's the thing. Rebecca, you can write. You're a very good writer. So that's great. That's the most important thing. But I know from your query letter that you need these two people to meet, right? Like this is a story about this 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 teenager and this woman. Hayden's observation of this woman, I don't want to say obsession because that's a stronger word, but her fixation, I guess, on this woman doesn't seem natural. It doesn't seem organic to me. Why would a 15-year-old be watching, looking out for a woman? They have nothing in common other than the neighborhood. There's there's another paragraph about this on the second page. And again, it doesn't seem organic. It seems like the author needed them to observe each other because that's what the story is about. So she's just making them observe each other or rather Hayden observe the woman. And I don't know. I I didn't quite believe it. Um, it's possible that it's just me. I do like very much when we start in the following page, there's a line that says it was not her first time being an unannounced observer and it would not be her last. That was very intriguing for me. So I really appreciated that. I just would say that Again, her fixation on the woman, not very organic. And 
notice that we've read five pages, really great writing, really telling lines. For example, the very last line, they were making their way through the prepared meals of friends and neighbors, learning who salted their noodles and who overcooked their meat. That right there tells me everything I need to know without actually telling me. So you're relying on the reader's intelligence and intuition to understand why would someone be going through food that their neighbors prepared? Obviously, something happened. Probably somebody died. It's, it's a, a time of grief, which makes sense given the rest of the pages. So I love that. It's beautiful and it's telling. But notice that we read five pages and there was no dialogue. Again, not necessarily a problem, but in this case, I would have liked to see more action. I would have liked to see Hayden's mind meanders a lot, which is okay, but I would have liked to see something happening on the outside as well, just because otherwise I don't quite have that tension that I need to, to be invested in a story. And in terms of you know her obsession or not obsession, her fixation on the older woman, you know, that kind of thing would feel authentic if, for example, you know, Hayden had recently lost her mother and was therefore looking to other people as mother figures or, you know, an older woman to take the place of her mother, which is not the case here. So, you know, there are instances where that would completely make sense. But in this instance, I think it's Hayden's brother who has recently passed away. So you would more expect her to be focusing on brothers than, you know, women in their thirties. That might be something to keep in mind there. Carly? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with everything that's been said. I felt like there was a a leaning towards trying to make Hayden seem more mature than she is sometimes because I think the tone, again, coming of age can borderline on literary, again, which is beautiful. So I'm, I'm just not convinced that the reader's going to fully buy in. And I think that Cece and my notes have kind of expressed that. So again, I think the writing is beautiful. It's just is this what Hayden would naturally do? I'm not totally convinced on that. I also feel like Hayden does, I know we're talking about like Hayden kind of thinking about a lot of things, but I do feel like she almost stays in the moment too long sometimes. Like she says, there's a sadness in this woman's this woman's expression, her eyes never quite mirroring the happy wave of her hand. Hayden had got good at recognizing the many faces of grief. Like beautiful lines, but the fact that this child would I, again, I think she's a child. I don't think she's a woman. She's a teenager. But I just, yeah, I almost feel like she's either staying in the moment too long for the sake of the reader. Like, I don't know, a little bit of using her as a pawn to make us feel something kind of thing, which because the writing is so good, I almost don't care. <laughs> like, just write anything. I'll, I'll read your shopping list. You, you, you have a beautiful style of writing. Um, I'll read anything you want me to read. But but yeah, I'm just kind of not convinced that this is the right approach for this character. And which, again, makes me kind of come back to my thoughts about the query, which was, I think we need to start in the adult woman's point of view because again, that is essentially, I think who your primary audience is going to be is an adult woman. So, so yeah, I would probably start with her. And then even when like, so the woman's walking her dog to the mailbox. And then when the woman sees this girl passing her on the bike, what if we like switch to the girl, like in that moment of passing, um, that was kind of my idea about like about the ways that these two mirror each other and the ways that they intersect. And so in that physical passing of them on the street, we, we pass POVs. But I think we need to start in the adult. I feel really strong that we have to start in the adult's voice. But, you know, you have a beautiful, beautiful style of writing. So uh, so I read to the end and I thought it was beautiful. Ultimately, not a lot happened. <laughs> so this would make me feel like this is, you know, a literary project. So this, if if we're not having a lot actually happen in the present moment, this wouldn't be a book for me because again, I, I would need a lot more plot to happen. But the writing is is beautiful and lovely. 
Once again, I just want to thank everybody for sharing their work with us. I know it takes a lot to put yourself out there. Uh, we really appreciate it. You're doing a service to not only yourself, but everybody listening. So we're, we're so thankful. Um, and if you have anything to say, uh, any opinions, any thoughts um, on anything we've talked about today, please find us on social media. For me, it's at Carly Waters. And Cece, where can they find you? So it's at Cecilia C. Lira on Twitter and Cecilia Lira Story on Instagram. We'll see you online. Thanks, everybody. Carly Waters will be running a 90-minute webinar on identifying and cultivating your author brand on the 11th of March at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. To register for that, head over to Carly's Instagram page where you'll find the link in her bio. I've got a course coming up on the 7th of April from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time called Taking Your Writing to the Next Level. If you've been writing for a while and know all the basics, you just want to elevate your working progress, then this two-hour course is the one for you. It'll give you lots of practical tips for the polishing phase. Head to my author page at biancamaray.com to get more information on dates, fees, and registration details. Also, CC will be offering one-on-one meetings and critique services via Manuscript Academy, which is a year-round online writers conference. You can find more details at manuscriptacademy.com forward slash Cecilia dash Lira. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th 
also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. And now for today's guest. She's the internationally best-selling author of three novels, which have been published around the world and translated into eight languages. She has worked as a stable hand, bartender, tropical resort destination rep, sports reporter, cemetery gardener, television listings writer, band roadie, and beauty magazine editor. She has also taught creative writing and editing at the University of Toronto and Centennial College. Her award-nominated journalism has appeared in newspapers and magazines across North America, including Elle, Reader's Digest, Today's Parent, and The Globe and Mail. She lives in Toronto with her family and her bookshelves. It's my pleasure to welcome Marissa Stapley. Marissa, hi and welcome to the show. It's so lovely to get to chat to you today. I think the very last, one of the very last author events or writing things I did was to get together with you and a whole bunch of kick-ass women writers in Canada. And I remember at the time when the dinner came up, I was super busy and my schedule was crazy and I was almost going to turn it down. And we all got together in a restaurant and just had this wonderful networking opportunity that you set up. And now am I so, so grateful that I said yes to that and that you arranged that for all of us. Doesn't it seem like such a long time ago? I Now with that new app with iPhone photo memories, that one is one of the ones that often comes up and I see us all gathered around the table and it, it's a who's who of commercial fiction in Canada. I mean, Amy Stewart's there, Sam Bailey, you're there, Jen Robson, but I mean, you name it, they were there and we were shoulder to shoulder in this beautiful restaurant eating and communing and it's one of my favorite memories from last year. So no, I know I'm so I'm so grateful we got to do it and really, really hope we get to do it again soon. Okay, so let's begin with you and I have had a discussion about how publishing is a marathon, not a, a race. It's not a sprint. It's something that takes a long time to build up a career as a writer. It takes a lot of fortitude, a lot of doggedness and determination. So let's talk about your route to publication and to becoming a writer, because it was quite a circuitous one. Take us through that. Okay. So, I mean, I have a lot of friends who came at writing from another direction, had a different career. I my dad was a writer, is a writer. My grandparent, two of my grandparents were writers. Uh, so I, and and somebody told me, I think maybe around the age of 10, read a short story and said, you've got it. You've got the writing gene. So there was no time in my life where I didn't think I was going to write a novel and I would read Anne of Green Gables and think, well, I'm going to be Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is my plan. So by the time I was, I guess in my late 20s, at that point, to me, I was like, well, I haven't written a novel yet. I was a magazine editor and I'd been a journalist, but I hadn't written a book. And I thought I better get on that. I was pregnant at that time, I think, with my second child as well, kind of rushing through life. And so I started writing my first novel. And the thing that I'm sure that many people who are aspiring novelists can probably identify with is especially when you're starting out, something you do is talk a lot about your writing instead of actually doing the writing. So I told everyone I was writing a novel. And because I was a writer and because I had been told I was a good writer, I thought, well, you know, this is just a slam dunk here. Like, I'm going to write this novel. 
and I'm going to get an agent and I'm going to get published. I had a friend, Chantel Gertan, who has a novel called Instamom coming out in this summer. And she had already been published with a keyporter at that time. So she was kind of guiding me and we would get together and talk about our writing. And I thought this is just going to be easy. And I finished this novel and it was environmental chiclet with Saving the World in Sensible Shoes. And it was like Bridget Jones meets David Suzuki's The Nature of Things. Now, this, <laughs> this novel never did get published. And I feel even when I give that pitch, I'm like, but I mean it. And it, so it did the rounds. I did end up getting an agent. It did the rounds. It, it, Key Porter is now a defunct Canadian publisher. They did acquire the right. However, quite shortly thereafter went belly up, which was at the time one of the worst things I felt could happen. Now I think, thank goodness, like this novel was great and it was funny and it was quirky, but I made a lot of mistakes. And sometimes I think, you know, your first novel probably shouldn't necessarily always be published. Um, Most authors I know have those practice novels in a drawer somewhere. So I had to go through getting the rights back. I actually ended up parting ways with my agent at that time. Everything just fell apart spectacularly. So I had moments thinking, wow, like this whole slam dunk is just over before it's even started. Uh, And then I wrote another novel from a place of sheer desperation because I had told everyone I was a novelist and everyone I was getting a book published. And so I had to do that. So I wrote this novel like, I must get published. I have to do this. So it's your saving face novel, right? Saving face novel. (laughs) So I did manage to get Samantha Haywood, who's now my agent, did take me on because I think not necessarily because of the novel, but maybe, I don't know, maybe she felt sorry for me. That actually isn't true. Agents don't feel sorry for people and take them on. But I think she definitely saw something and she was willing to work with me. And Samantha and most agents are with you in it for the long haul. This is not true of publishers, right? Authors will switch publishers and throughout their career, but agents are, it's a relationship. So we started that relationship. This second desperation novel was written. Sam did go out with it and nobody wanted it at all. Not even, I mean, maybe close-ish, but not that close. I mean, I think it, it reeked of desperation, I will say. So can I just say there, I always feel like the closer you get, the worse it is. Yes. I feel like if there's this resounding silence and resounding no, then you go, okay, it, it wasn't the book. But you know, when you, and it's just the same for emerging writers who query agents, where they get out, I really loved this, this, and this, and this, and it was great. And then it's the no. And it always, it's so much more heartbreaking when you feel like you got close, but not close enough. It is so true. And I sh- I'm, I'm probably not being fair to this book. I think I got close enough. I mean, and Sam did believe in it, but most of the rejections were bring us something else. And I thought, are you, I am, there's nothing else. Like this is it. I give up. I have tried. And now I will just tuck my tail between my legs. And I had a good job as a magazine editor. I had two kids at that point. I was busy enough. And I thought, okay, this, I give up. I'm done. So that was, I mean, I think that was about 10 years ago. And, but Sam did not give up on me. And I think this is an important part of the story. So Sam would get in touch every few months and say maybe every six months or so and say, how are you doing? Are you writing anything? So I started producing nonfiction proposals for her because I was done with fiction. I couldn't, I was a failure. So I would say, well, I can write a parenting book, which is hilarious. I had two toddlers. They were a year apart. I couldn't even see my way in front of me. And so I thought I'd write a parenting book. And then I I don't even remember what the other pitch was, but I gave her 
two nonfiction proposals and she would say, well, these are really interesting, but you're so good at fiction. So do you have anything? And actually I was secretly writing short stories because something else I think writers, aspiring writers, any kind of writer can identify with is the fact is if you are a writer, you are a writer and writing makes you happy and it, and it feeds it something in you. And I missed it. So sometimes I would close my door of my office at the magazine I was working at at lunch and I would write a short story. And I was writing short stories about women who were mothers, women who were going through some of the things I was going through, some of the things my friends were going through. And I was just writing these stories. So one day Sam said, why don't we just have a coffee and you we can just catch up? And I thought, oh gosh, she probably wants to fire me. I haven't done anything in two years. And <laughs> And so, so we had lunch and I, I said, she said, so no, you're not doing any fiction. I said, well, I'm, I'm writing some short stories about, about women. And she said, well, I want to see them. And I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll email you some of them later. And then I parted ways thinking, well, I'll never see her again because I'm going to send her these stories that I've just written for myself that I love and feel really good for me. And there's nothing she's going to be able to do with them. So I sent her the short stories. She phoned me and she said, Marissa, you're writing a novel. This is a novel. These women need to meet each other. They need to, you need to figure out, like, you're writing a novel that really just has characters and you need to find a way to connect these characters and just go for it. So I thought about it for a long time and I thought, well, these women are too different. They would never be friends. So I solved that problem by making them sisters, which is something I've always been interested in because I have three brothers and three stepbrothers and no sisters. So I've always wanted sisters. So I thought I will create the sisters I've always wanted. And then Mating for Life began to take shape and it began as linked short stories and turned into what it was. And it was something that I had just, it was something I was writing for myself and it gave me joy I worked so hard to perfect it. I think I did like seven or eight drafts before I showed it to Sam again. But the result was that when she sent it out on submission, I had a deal within a week. I had multiple offers and the rest is history is a very simple way of putting it because I'm still in the marathon. Like that was like, I got my number put on and I got to, you know, start running in the, in the competitive marathon, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the point of the story is really, it never, it seldom goes the way you think it is going to. Even those authors who look like they're bathed in gold dust and everything is going really well with their debut, you don't know how many practice novels they have in that drawer. You don't know what they went through. And you can't, I read something the other day, like you can't compare somebody else's social media feed or their their best day with, with your average day. Like it's, this is all just curated. And what's really going on in the background is that people are running marathons towards yeah. their publishing goals. And what I love about what you've just said is how it was the thing you were writing for yourself that you as a writer needed to get this creativity out and you were writing these stories for yourself no intention to show them to anybody and I feel like as writers that's where the magic happens because when we try and write something that we think is going to be commercially viable and this is what the market wants it never has the authenticity or the passion of these projects that we write because you know they speak to us because these characters speak to us. So I love that that was the thing as opposed to the desperation project or the saving face project that that got mm-hmm. you that got you launched. This takes me to my next question because you've had so much experience with this and in our podcast just before our chat, you know, I've had uh, Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira from PS Literary looking at people's query letters and their first five pages. Let's talk a bit about the work that needs to go into getting your novel in shape 
to show to an agent. Okay, so and let me, I'll go back in time again to that first novel, which I did get an agent with. I did not get it in the right shape. It was not where it needed to be. In fact, I started querying before it was even done. I had a lot of interest and I did not end up with my forever agent. I ended up with an agent who was fine. Uh, We worked together. We did a lot of edits on the manuscript. And I knew at the time if I had only gotten it into the right shape, I would have ended up with Sam right away because she did see it and she did turn it down because it just wasn't there. So one of the things that I learned at that time was even a good idea, even if you can hook something. Someone with like Bridget Jones goes to the Arctic, nature of things meets, you know, shopaholic. A great idea is just a great idea. And there are many great ideas out there. And it really is all in the execution. And you have to prove that and you have to do the work. And it is work. So it's, it's, the first draft is not something that you should be sending out, even if it feels to you like you have written, you know, 80, 90,000 words. This has been so much work. This has to be enough. It's not enough. It has to be a polished second or third draft that takes time, patience, and work. It's not glamorous. It's not, it's not always fun. I mean, there's passion and there's joy and you're writing it for yourself. And I do find that in the writing part that I love writing. Some authors love editing. I don't love editing my own work, but you must, right? You must do that. And it has to be, it has to be polished into a diamond that will stand out because these agents are seeing a lot every day. And how do you suggest writers do that? So I know you run the starter. Could you tell us a bit about that and how that service might help writers in terms of doing that polishing? Because I always recommend that writers belong to writing groups. For me, that's where all the magic with my work has happened. Everything I write gets critiqued by my two different writing groups. But I know that there are writers out there who don't necessarily enjoy writing groups. That's not for them how they're able to to write and polish. So what what kind of steps do you recommend? So I do recommend that idea of having, or if not a writing group, having some kind of community or someone you can bounce your work off of. So part the starter is an online writing school that I started, I guess, at the beginning of our last lockdown. So last March, I wanted to start to foster community. So I wanted to teach these classes, but I always funnel the students in my class into a Facebook group where they then begin chatting amongst themselves and meeting each other because it is so important to meet other writers and to find your people. So of course, what I'm doing is offering my expertise or other teachers I have like Farah Heron offering uh, her expertise about rom-com or Kelly Thompson about creative nonfiction or Karma Brown has taught about query letter writing and Jennifer Robson about historical fiction research. So we're all offering our expertise, but what the starter offers is also an opportunity for community and for you to kind of take it from there. So you can perhaps find a critique partner in that Facebook group or in the class. And I think that is just incredibly important. I don't know where I'd be without my community. I mean, we began this conversation talking about that dinner, that long ago dinner where we all got together and we have each other and where would we be without, without each other. I just, I don't know. So that I think is part of it. But to answer your question about how to get your manuscript from 
point A to point, you know, D, E, or F, where it's actually ready to send to to an agent. I think that that requires a commitment to learning about the craft of writing. So this can begin on a basic level, just reading and reading and reading, and then just reading books about writing as well, like Stephen King's On Writing or Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird are kind of the, the basics, right? And I know there are so many others. And then you may want to start thinking about taking a course where you can learn from an author the steps exactly how to get, first of all, your idea from idea to execution, and then how to get it to the second or third draft that you might send to an agent. And ultimately, there's no easy answer. It requires hard work, patience, letting it simmer, percolate, letting a first draft sit for a little while before you jump back in. It potentially could require hiring a freelance editor, which I did do with Saving the World in Sensible Shoes. I hired Bev Rosenbaum to give me, I forget, a manuscript evaluation. So we do we do editing at the starter as well or mentoring, which is just, you know, a weekly chat, questions and then feedback on different parts of the manuscript. But I think it it's a commitment and it doesn't just happen overnight. And just because you have a wonderful idea doesn't mean it it really is just like a seed for, and you can't just say, well, I have this amazing seed for these prize winning dahlias. And then you just like stick it in the soil and walk away. Right. You have to do the work. So. Yeah. And I love what you said earlier about how, when we first come to writing, how we talk about it so much and we talk about being writers and we, you know, we, we ask other writers for advice because we tend to think there's this magical secret that if somebody lets us in on, we'll figure out this whole novel writing thing. But the truth is, is that it's a bum in the chair. It's hour after hour of just getting the shit down. That's, that's what it is. And then polishing the shit up. And that's pretty much what it, is. And I find that other writers, once they've progressed in their careers, they actually tend to talk about the writing a hell of a lot less. Yeah. <laughs> the, the more writing we're doing, the less we actually speak about it. So that's that's also interesting. <laughs> it's the last thing we want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. It's when somebody's like... <laughs> I I read your book in an hour. What's next? And it's like, oh. My friend Liz Renzetti, who I think you know, I think she was at that dinner. So she said her husband, when she was writing her last book, got her a t-shirt that said, how's your f***ing book going on it? And I, (laughs) right? Like this is, we all need this t-shirt. In fact, now that I say it, I'm just going to go and have them made for everyone I know, because that's exactly how, somebody asked you how your book is going. You're like, Uh, that is amazing. Please. Please get that for the starter. I will <laughs> I will get that T-shirt. Um, my agent and I were talking about how for uh, her and I were batting ideas backwards and forwards the other day. And I, I said, why do bad ideas happen to good writers? And we were like, that needs to be on a T-shirt as well. <laughs> yes. We should start a business, like a line. Like, yeah. <laughs> No, I love that. How's your f- book going. <laughs> I need that damn t-shirt. Yes. Um, okay, so let's talk about, you've got a book that is coming out soon, Lucky. Tell us when that launches. Tell us a bit about that. I do. So I have, Lucky is coming out on April the 6th in Canada. And I believe, this is terrible, I, it's December 7th, I know, in the US, Lucky number seven. And Lucky is about a con artist with a heart of gold who discovers that she is wanted by the FBI for her crimes on the same day that her partner leaves her, her partner and the love of her life, and realizes the only thing she has to her name is a 
winning lottery ticket she bought on a whim. So she's on the run. She's got this ticket in her back pocket. Can she redeem the lottery ticket and herself before time runs out? So, and Lucky is, has been a gift to me. Lucky fell into my life two years ago, I suppose. It was April, I remember. And I was, my mom was not well and I was writing a very sad novel and I and it was it was a good idea and I still think about it but it was sad and as soon as she got sick the novel just slipped through my fingers and it was gone and I couldn't I couldn't get it back and I actually thought well the marathon is over like I just don't I don't think I could ever write another word they writers can be dramatic sometimes as you know and then I heard a radio report about a lottery ticket worth $200 million or some hugely dramatically high payout in the United States and the news. And I, and I think about this sometimes because I never hear newscasters talking about lotteries very rarely, but they were kind of having fun talking about like, why hadn't this ticket been, been why hadn't anyone redeemed it? And then they were, it could be lost. Maybe the person doesn't know they had it. Maybe the person died. And then somebody said, or, you know, maybe there's a warrant out for their arrest and they can't cash it in. And I thought, oh my gosh, that would be such a great story. So a few minutes later, all of a sudden it was like Lucky tapped on my shoulder and I could see her and I could feel her and she was telling me her story and it was so much fun. And I went to see my mom and I said, I think I have a better book idea than the sad book. And I started telling her and she was like, that's such a great idea. And even during a really difficult year and my mom eventually did die of cancer, somehow Lucky kept us entertained and happy. And I believe this character can do anything. I think everybody, even if in your darkest pandemic day, will read this book and be like, this is so much fun. And Lucky's moving. She's going somewhere all the time. And And I also love how writing can be a sanctuary during really difficult times. Because, you know, over the last year, we've all spoken as writers about how difficult it is to create when you know, your world is upended and when things are tumultuous and many writers just kind of stepped back from their writing and they just weren't able to to concentrate on it or to work on it. But I love that during such a dark time in your life, Marissa, you were able to find refuge in the writing process. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And during, and last year I wrote a rom-com with Karma Brown as well called The Holiday Swap, which will be published in October with Putnam, Penguin Random House Canada and Hotter Hachette UK. So that, and we just did that because we were lonely and because we were feeling low and we thought, what do we want right now? And all we wanted was to think about Christmas. So we wrote a Christmas rom-com and we just, we had so much fun and it was, that was a refuge and something I'd never done before just to think about it was sort of like going back to when mating for life was just for me. The holiday swap was just for fun. And that is, it worked. And editors can see that and agents can see that too, right? Like, I know that you can't exactly trick yourself into thinking when you haven't been published and you want to be published, like, this is just for fun. And there's not all this emotional baggage that comes from the fact that for some reason, wanting to be a writer makes you feel like such a failure. And by the way, I know it, publishing is sort of set up to often make you feel like a failure anyway. So if you think that's going to change, like it won't, you've got to actually develop that thick skin and just say, I'm doing this because I love it and I've got to find the joy. Well, Marissa, it's been an absolute joy chatting with you. Thank you so much. For the listeners, go out, pre-order Lucky. That'll be out in in April. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading it, Marissa, and I look forward to having you on the show again sometime soon. Hopefully you and Karma together to, to discuss your book that'll be coming out later this year. That will be fun. We would love that.
And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.